So I'm going to um, take a, a look at the subject of apologetics, and I've uh, subtitled this um, What, Where, When, Who, How, and Why. And what I'm really going to be doing is uh, unpacking and digging behind um, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15, which is, um, for apologists, kind of the uh, biblical go-to text um, on this topic. And I'm going to bring to um, that unpacking uh, of the meaning of this verse uh, various research that I've been doing recently into uh, the definition of what apologetics is, um, how it relates to ideas about Christian spirituality uh, and uh, Greek rhetoric and things. I've been doing a lot of work recently on um, investigating how Paul did evangelism uh, in Athens and so on. And um, I would just draw your attention um, to these uh, CDR discs that I'll have on the book table over there. So I draw your attention to the book table as well. Uh, I've got a paper on here. I've got various um, uh, web-linked uh, links for useful apologetic websites and so on, and uh, various um, MP3 recordings of really useful talks on ap apologetics, including Tom's from Your Christian Union and various others as well. So let's, uh, without further ado, get stuck into this. A uh, bit of an introduction, a few quotes from a very famous uh, 20th century evangelist called Francis Schaeffer. And here, uh, heard of or read anything by Francis Schaeffer? Excellent. I've got a, a little collection compendium of some of his works on the table there. Um, this is Schaeffer from uh, his book, The God Who Is There. He said, the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument although winning arguments is important in apologetics, but it's not just to win arguments or discussions, <laughs> but that, we are people with whom, that, that the people with whom we are in contact may become Christians and then live under the Lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life. And he's gesturing there towards the idea that uh, uh, apologetics is a very uh, broad discipline, just as Christianity itself is a very broad thing, uh, and not a very narrow thing that we compartmentalise like an, an academic subject or a hobby, um, something that affects the whole of life. He goes on to say, I'm only interested in an apologetic that leads in two directions, and the one is to lead people to Christ as Saviour, and the other is that after they are Christians, for them to realise the lordship of life in the whole of life. So actually I think that apologetics and studying it is not only useful in terms of our being good ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven, but also in terms of us being good citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that it actually helps our own discipleship to look into this subject as well. Here is the definition of apologetics that I have been working on. And I will unpack, as we go through the talk, um, various of these uh, three bits of this definition as we're going through. I think that apologetics is the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities. So there are other people, uh, and uh, they have their different spiritualities, different worldviews, religions, philosophies, and so on. We have ours, and we want to communicate and persuasively advocate being a Christian to other people. And those other people will have different views. So the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities as objectively true, good, and beautiful. It's only worth being passionate 
about the kingdom of God because Christ is the truth, as we were talking about earlier, that he is the way, the truth, and the, and the life, and so on, that what he's teaching and the way of life that he calls people to engage in is good, and that uh, God is the most beautiful person that there could possibly be. If you want a, a, a good philosophical summary definition of, of, of God, he is the most beautiful person that there can be. And to be engaged in a relationship with him and, and, and a, to be a co-worker in the project of the kingdom with him, I mean, what higher and uh, more uh, um, exciting and wonderful a calling in life could there possibly be? So we're advocating our spirituality across uh, to people who have other spiritualities. We're advocating it as being true and good and beautiful. And we're doing that, thirdly, through the responsible use of rhetoric. Now, rhetoric is a term that's got a bad press today. We'll talk about how a politician gave a speech and it was, oh, it was just, just rhetoric rather than content. That's not the way that the ancient world thought about the topic of rhetoric, as we'll see. Uh, I want to say just a few words uh, about the misrepresentation of the concept of of faith, of Christian faith in particular, um, that's perpetrated by the so-called New Atheists. You probably have heard of the New Atheists writers like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens and so on. Um, The New Atheists, as this article from Wired magazine, condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion is not only wrong, according to the New Atheists, it's evil. And the primary reason why they think that, when you dig into it, is that they have a misunderstanding and they misrepresent the Christian concept of faith. And they say things like this, Richard Dawkins, Faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Uh, Victor Stenger, faith is belief in the absence of supporting evidence and even in the light of contrary evidence. A.C. Grayling, faith is a commitment to belief contrary to evidence and reason. That's what they understand Christian faith to be. That is not what the Bible understands Christian faith to be. That's what they understand Christian faith to be. And given that understanding, you could see why they would be worried about how people can very easily um, be radicalised into doing terrible things because, hey, they've already given up any commitment commitment to being reasonable and rational people. Um, To quote from our friend Tom, Tom Price, he says, When the New Testament talks about faith positively, it only uses words derived from the Greek root pistis, which means to be persuaded and rationally so. Um, Just a selection of verses from both Old and New Testaments. And in the New Testament you can see I've got uh, quotes from uh, Jesus, from Paul, uh, from Peter, talking about uh, reasoning, explaining, proving, evidence, uh, loving God with all your mind, choosing your words carefully and being ready to give answers to people who question us about our our faith and so on. C.S. Lewis, a very famous uh, Christian writer of the last century, said that faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods or fears. He gave a famous uh, uh, analogy where he said, I might be fully rationally convinced that anaesthetic works and that if the doctors give me anaesthetic, then I won't feel pain when they do the operation. 
I'd be rationally convinced of that. Nevertheless, while I'm waiting on the table for the operation, he says, that doesn't mean that I'm not necessarily going to get nervous and worried and, and start thinking, oh, maybe it won't work, maybe it will hurt, you know. Oh dear, oh dear. And he says there's a conflict there between emotion and mood ganging up on what you're rationally convinced of. And that faith is holding on to what you're rationally convinced of, despite opposition from things that are non-rational. So really, faith is, in a sense, the opposite of what the new atheists think that it is. Faith, if you want a good modern translation of the term, I think, would be trust. I trust you. That's having faith. But my trust in someone might well be fully rationally justified. I might be able to give very good reasons why I trust someone. But nevertheless, I trust them. Um, philosophers will distinguish between having a belief that something is true versus having a belief in something. Um, so the old sort of illustration, yes, I believe that the chair will take my weight when I sit on it and it won't dump me unceremoniously on the floor. But nevertheless... Um, to demonstrate that I have belief in the chair, I do that by sitting on it. If I say that, I believe that it'll hold me, but I'm really reticent about actually sitting on it, you'll probably start doubting that I even believe that it is safe to sit in. And a combination of this belief that um, God is real and has a certain character and is trustworthy and has made certain promises and so on, and actually taking a step of sitting in his arms, as it were. Well, that's faith. So let's turn to unpacking 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15, and I'm going to do that in uh, two different ways. First of all, with my list of uh, journalistic questions. Uh, here is the verse. Um, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone, very inclusive, as we were hearing earlier, Everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So, when, where, and who, I would summarise answers to that by saying, um, apologetics means that every Christian should be ready at any appropriate time and in any appropriate place to dialogue, uh, a term used in the New Testament, the way that St. Paul engaged people, um, to dialogue with anyone who has honest questions about the Christian faith. Now, some people don't have honest questions. They just have questions that are smoke screens or uh, meant to put you on the spot or whatever. But there are people who have honest questions. And to them, we should always be prepared to enter into dialogue. Why should we be prepared to do this? Well, because you have hope in Christ. And loving him means loving those whom he loves. It's a bit like when you, uh, if someone married someone who already had children from a previous marriage. You get a package deal. You can't just say, well, I'll marry you, but I'm not going to love the kids. Because you love the other person and they love these kids... If you say to them, I love you, and I'm going to be in a relationship with you, you have to at the same time to be saying, and I'm going to love them, because they're important to you. So they're going to be important to me. Well, it's like that with getting to know God. God loves everyone. So we have to as well if we're going to love him. 
Uh, and also because you've been commanded to do it. We are under this uh, obligation that we were hearing about earlier, and we've been directly commanded. And this verse, interestingly, in 1 Peter, is not a verse that applies to those who have the gift of apologetics, whatever. I don't think it's actually mentioned as a gift in the New Testament, interestingly enough. This is something that is applied to every Christian. Now, every Christian will do it at a different uh, level of, say, intellectual engagement, maybe, those uh, of us who have a particular calling to be academics might do it in a more academic way. Those of us who don't will do it in a less academic way. But we're all called to do it, to do this apologetics. Uh, which turns us to the what question while giving an apology. Not, as the modern usage of the word implies, a saying sorry for something, but as the original Greek word, the apologia, apologia, means giving an answer. It was a word that was used in the, in the legal system, in the court, for someone uh, when the lawyer would stand up and give, make the defence in court. A rational defence of one's position. And how? Well, by being prepared, by being gentle, and the word there is directed towards the, the people that we're dialoguing with, and being respectful. And the word translated as respectful there is a word that applies to our attitude towards God. So there's a, an attitude towards the people in the context of an attitude towards God. brings to mind Jesus' sayings on the most important commandment, to love God with everything that we are and to love our neighbour as ourself. That one flows from the other, as I was just saying. But I think we can cut this up in another way which will bring some interesting uh, background uh, from the three parts of my definition of apologetics into play because that uh, can really be seen in this verse. You'll notice that there are a number of actions. There's, there's always be prepared to give, to give, do this. This is something that we have to actively do. But those actions flow from our attitudes. The passage talks about the fact that we have this hope that should make us want to share it with others. That we do that with the attitude of gentleness to the people we're sharing with, and an attitude of respect for God, whom we're representing when we do it. And those attitudes are based upon beliefs, ideas. Always be prepared to give an answer, a rational case, a lot of ideas involved, to give a reason, an argument, and so on. So we have in this verse beliefs leading coupled with attitudes leading to action. Which brings me to talking about the understanding of spirituality, because quite independently of, of my thinking about apologetics, which I've been doing recently, I've been doing thinking about, well, what is spirituality? It's a word that lots of people talk about, that the educational system in the country talks about, but which there's very, uh, a great deal of vagueness about. And so I was trying to pin down, what is spirituality? Well, here's what I came up with. I reckon that spirituality is all about how humans relate to reality. To themselves, to each other, to the world about us, to whatever we conceive ultimate reality as being. But it's how we relate to reality via our worldview beliefs, are um, paired with attitudes that we take towards what we believe to be true, and subsequent behaviour that flows out of that. 
you know, if I'm an atheist and I don't believe that there's a God, or I do believe that there's a God, like the demons, but I hate him, I have a rather bad attitude coupled with my belief, that then in either case I'm not going to end up taking the action of praying in his name, or giving money into the collection plate, whatever. On the other hand, if I believe him in it there and I have a certain attitude of trust, of faith in him, then that will lead me to behaving in those ways quite naturally as an outflowing of who I am becoming in Christ. Uh, James W. Sire, in a very good book, uh, The Universe Next Door, about to go into its fifth edition, um, it says that a worldview is a commitment, it's a fundamental orientation of the heart, of yourself, that can be expressed as a story, or in a set of pro- uh, presuppositions, uh, that's assumptions that uh, people hold about reality that could be true, or partially true, or wholly true, or entirely false. Uh, assumptions which we hold consciously or subconsciously. Many people don't necessarily go around thinking, oh, I've got a worldview, you know. But pepper them with a few questions about their attitudes towards things and, and why they have them and what they believe and how they act and so on, you can begin to work out what their worldview is. And we might be consistent or inconsistent. Many people um, will sort of pick and choose bits from various different worldviews in a way that doesn't really systematically fit them together into a nice, neat whole, um, as philosophers try to do. But in real life, uh, people are a bit messier with this. Um, But these uh, ideas and attitudes, commitments that people have, provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being, to quote from St. Paul, quoting from a pagan Greek playwright. So spirituality, these three elements, they form a self-reinforcing loop. We can talk about faith beliefs, leading to having certain attitudes, leading to having faith actions in a certain way. You can divide it up, as St. James does in the Bible, into faith, your beliefs, and your attitudes, your belief that, your belief in, leading to works, hence why he says faith without works is dead. Um, And it becomes a self-reinforcing way of living, which is why it can sometimes be hard to nudge people out of their self-reinforcing loop. None of that should come as a surprise to any of us who bring to mind Jesus' words about the most important commandment. Because he says that true spirituality is to love God with all of your heart, your will, your attitudes, and all of your mind, including, of course, your worldview, your beliefs, and with all of your strength, that is all that you do in life, your actions, your practices. And Jesus there is uh, calling on Old Testament from Moses from Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Or St. Paul writing to the Colossians. You see again those three elements here. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word, the logos, the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. It's about the mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And whatever you do... As a consequence, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So again and again you see this three-part structure underlying the, the biblical teaching about spirituality. Now I think that's a general structure 
that will apply to anyone. Richard Dawkins has a spirituality. It's just that he has a materialistic, naturalistic spirituality. But he believes certain things. He has attitudes about things. And he does things because of them. It's just that everybody fills out that general schema in different ways. And a Christian spirituality, according to Christ, is where you love God with all of your beliefs, attitudes, act, actions, put some other terms that have been used throughout history there. Orthodoxy, orthopathy, and orthopraxy in the medieval uh, terms. And that leads you to loving your neighbour as yourself, hence doing apologetics. The third part of my definition of apologetics mentioned rhetoric. And this is Alistair McGrath, um, quite a famous Christian theologian from Oxford. He says that in the battle for the hearts and minds of people, Christians need to know about rhetoric. And he points to Aristotle uh, from the ancient world as providing a stimulus and a framework for more effective apologetics. Well, I agree. Um, Aristotle, particularly famous and very, very influential uh, Greek philosopher from the 4th century BC, Uh, One of his many works was a work on rhetoric, where he defines rhetoric this way. He says, it's the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits, and then to communicate that well to an audience. But it's grounded in the objective reality of going, what is persuasive about this position, about this idea, and so on, and then being able to communicate that well. Of the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. The first kind, called ethos, depends on the personal character of the speaker. The second, called pathos, on putting an audience into a certain frame of mind. It's about their emotional response, their attitudinal response to what you're talking about. And the third, logos, on the proof provided by the words of the speech itself, the argument that you make. Now, it struck me as very, very interesting when I was getting into this, and I suddenly noticed that St. Paul, in Colossians again, used not the terms, but he's clearly talking about the same things as Aristotle, in the same order as Aristotle, when he's talking to other Christians about how they should go about doing their evangelism. And it starts off as a a prayer for him and ends up as kind of advice for them. Um, It says, please pray that I'll make the message as clear as possible. When you are with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. Be an engaging character. Be be gentle uh, with people. Be pleasant. Ethos. And hold their interest. Engage them, not just at a, a sort of head level, but at a heart level as well. Pathos. Hold their interest when you speak the message. Choose your words carefully. Logos. Be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks questions. Which, the ending here, immediately brings to my mind at least 1 Peter 3.15, of course. Always be ready to give an answer. But here from Paul, there from Peter. So, again, 1 Peter 3.15, you can analyse it in terms of the logos, be prepared to give an answer. Uh, the pathos, the, the hope that you have, the, the goodness, the beauty of the Christian uh, worldview and life and so on. But do this with 
gentleness and respect, the way in which you, you do it, and the, the character that you display as you're doing it, the ethos, very, very important. Cicero was a Roman orator um, a little bit later than Aristotle. He was actually the governor of the, the university town where St. Paul grew up at one stage. And he wrote a book on uh, rhetoric, which he said that the eloquent speaker is he who in the forum and in the courts will speak in such a way as to achieve proof, delight, and influence over people. Well, Thomas Aquinas, from quite a bit later, would have noted that Cicero's outcomes here relate not only to the rhetorical elements from Aristotle, uh, ethos, influence, pathos, delight, logos, proof, but also to what's called the transcendental values. That is, values in terms of which you can judge absolutely anything. They apply to everything. Those are truth, beauty, goodness. Truth relating to the proof, the beauty to the delight, and the goodness to the influence of the audience. Now, those are quite a lot of different kind of terms and sets of terms to hold in mind. So I've tried to diagram them together here in a grid. Um, it was just so exciting for me as a philosopher, anyway, when I've been doing these independent bits of research on what is spirituality, on what is uh, good rhetoric, on uh, apologetics and so on. And I noticed these threes kept cropping up and that they lined up and that the, uh, the classical Greek thinking uh, was reflected in the New Testament teaching about these things as well. So you have over here on the left our spirituality, your Christian beliefs, attitudes, ac actions. But we have the transcendental values of truth, goodness, beauty, the classical rhetoric over here. So your beliefs about reality are judged by truth. You want to believe things because they're true. You want to advocate things because you think they're true. And you communicate that through giving a reason. Logos. Your attitude is drawn in a positive sense by beauty. You want to judge the attitudes that fit with a worldview by beauty and communicate that to people. Um, that's a big part of what we're communicating, not just uh, a, a, an argument, uh, a rational worldview. Christianity is that, but it's so much more than that. And actions judged by goodness, of course, and communicated through the character of the speaker, reflecting, hopefully, more and more as we go on through life, the character of him whom we represent here on earth. So, in summary, back to our starting definition, with that background, this will now have uh, more resonance for you. The art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities. As objectively true and good and beautiful through the responsible use of rhetoric. That is the definition that I would give of apologetics. And I hope by giving you those windows into those three elements you can catch something in the vision of the importance, the excitement, uh, the truth, goodness and beauty of being an ambassador for Christ, being an apologist 
as 1 Peter 3.15 calls us to do. If I would boil this down to my three top tips, as it were, it comes out like this. Live your spirituality, really engage with your Christian spirituality as Christ commands with all that you are, with all of your heart and your mind and strength. But also seek to understand other people's spiritualities so that you're not um, communicating across purposes with them. You know what degree of common ground you share with them that you can build upon, just like uh, St. Paul did um, with the Athenians in Athens. I haven't got time to go into that, but there's a recording of a talk on that on the uh, discs that I've got on the table. Secondly, judge spiritualities, your own and other people's, and help other people to judge spiritualities according to truth, goodness and beauty. And the objectivity of those things. We're not just talking about true for me, but not for you. I like vanilla ice cream, you like chocolate. That's all there is to it. No, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Uh, And equally, other people who don't agree with that, they're claiming that we are wrong. So any of this sort of high-handed, totalitarian, postmodern relativism of, oh, well, you know, we've all just got to uh, say it's true for you, not, not for me. You're so, you Christians are so totalitarian and fascist saying that you're right. Hang on a minute, was that the postmodernist just telling me that I was wrong and that they were right? Are they being, oh dear, hoisted by their own petard? Everybody really thinks that their ideas are true. Otherwise, we wouldn't hold to them. (laughs) Um, And finally, communicating the truth, the goodness, the beauty of Christian spirituality, of Christ and of God himself through good rhetoric. It's not using um, sort of underhanded emotionalism and tricks and things, but it's being able to note the truth, goodness and beauty of what we've been entrusted with and to help other people to discover that for themselves. To end with a quote from Schaefer again. If Christianity is truth, it ought to touch the whole of life. Christianity must never be reduced to merely an intellectual system. After all, if God is there, it isn't just an answer to an intellectual question. Although it is. But it isn't just. That's the mind. We're called upon to adore him. To adore him for his beauty and his love. Our hearts. To be in relationship with him and incidentally, as a consequence, naturally flowing out of that, as we were talking about, to obey him with all of our strength. Thank you.